This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio is Dr. Constance Schultz. She's retired professor from the University of South Carolina, where for many years she was the director of the public history program, and she also edited the papers of Eliza Lucas Pinckney and Harriet Pinckney O'Ree. Connie, welcome to the journal. It's delight to be here, Walter. I learned very recently that you won a very distinguished honor in the field of public history. Would you like to tell our listeners about that? Well, it's called the Robert Kelly Award, um, and it's for a lifetime achievement in the field of public history. Um, Robert Kelly was one of the originators of the field back in the 1970s. And Walter, I think you yourself were one of the very early originators of that field within universities because you created the public history program at the University of South Carolina in 1975. Is that right? That, that is correct. And we were one of the earliest programs. And I was part of the forming group with Kelly. We actually met at the University of Pittsburgh and formed the Public History Association. Right. In those days, there was a debate, is it going to be applied history, which is what we called it at the University of South Carolina and several other places, yeah. or public history? And the group then decided to call it public history. Getting that program adopted at the University of South Carolina was not an easy process. I understand that. Um, every development of it along the way required a lot of work with administrators and the colleagues in the history department mm. who didn't always understand what it was we were doing. Your listeners might want to know what on earth is public history. <laughs> well, that was the question that in 1974, when I actually got the proposal together with Dr. Jack Sprode, who was then the new chair of the history department, he was all in favor of it. He, he understood what we were about. Uh, but colleagues would say, applied history isn't all history applied, <laughs> or is this a trade school subject? Fortunately, the then director of the graduate program in the history department was Dr. Owen Conley. He got it, and he helped shepherd it through the faculty senate, all the administrators, the board of trustees. It had to be approved by the board of trustees and the commission on higher education because it was a new academic program. And in those days, we referred to applied history as such things as historical editing, archival management, uh, museum management, and working in a historic site, historic preservation. So those were the four areas. And of course, students took courses that were technical in those fields, but they also took traditional history courses. They were history graduate students. So uh, that's the way we started out. And it, of course, did change over time. Well, it's interesting because uh, we at South Carolina have been consistent throughout the history of the program in saying that public historians or applied historians are first historians, mm -hmm. uh, which means you need to know how to do research in primary sources. It means you need to know what other people have written about a topic or a subject. So you're grounded in what we call the secondary literature, the, the books that people read that have already been written, as well as the sources, the primary sources, that form the basis for those books, but will form the basis for future ones. And today, not only is there a degree in public history, but say I'm majoring in colonial history, but I can take public history as one of my fields uh, for graduate study. That's exactly right. So when, when I came to the program in 1985, I came in part because... USC had just worked out between the history and the library school that it was important for people going into the management of archives and manuscript collections to have both a library science understanding of how records are organized and, most importantly, preserved and made accessible to users by good indexing or good what we call finding aids, 
they needed to have that, but they really needed a grounding in history because if you're making decisions about what papers are important to save, uh, then you need to know how historians have treated those subjects in the past, but also what's out there and what people are concerned about now in terms of understanding the past. So I had a grounding that I had worked in a scholarly editing project um, on the papers of the First Federal Congress and long ago and far away on the papers of Booker T. Washington. But I had also spent a year in a postdoctoral fellowship in the bowels of the National Archives helping understand for historians what's what's down there and how it's organized. So I became the person that they hired to shepherd that joint program between history and library science for archives. Well, you mentioned you came here in, in 1985. Our listeners always like to know a little bit about our guests. So where did you come from and how did you get here? Well, I got here because of wonderful accidents that made the career that I have loved. I came down here from the Washington, D.C. area, where my husband and I had lived between Baltimore and Washington um, for about 15 years. I was trained as an historian at the University of Cincinnati. I did a doctoral dissertation on Thomas Jefferson and John Adams' religious ideas, But in the Washington area, this was before there was very good child care, I had three small children. And so I became everybody's adjunct. I taught at the University of Maryland, both during their day program and their uh, evening and weekend program. I taught at American University because I needed to be home with my children. I would never have imagined that that would lead to the career I had because During the day, I did research at the National Archives and the Library of Congress, and I met people, and I became part of a group of historians organized out of the National Museum of American History by the curator there, Edie Mayo, who was then working on the First Lady's Gowns exhibit as it was done in the 1970s. And she had a seminar of women historians who happened to be in Washington, some of them living there doing part-time work, some of them visiting to do research. Uh, We called it the Washington Women Historians, but it meant that I had this close connection with public historians, uh, people at the National Archives, people at the National Park Service, people at the Library of Congress, the Department of Agriculture, the Smithsonian, and learned about all of their work. Didn't know what public or applied history was before that. And I met these really interesting people doing interesting stuff. And on the strength of that, I was hired by the Documentary History of the First Federal Congress as an NHPRC fellow in 1980, National Historical Publications and Records Commission. And again, I got to work at the National Archives. I got to work with records at the uh, National Society of the Daughters of the American Republic uh, because my research was there. It was just a fascinating entry into a field. So when USC advertised the position, even though I had been actively working and teaching in the field for 15 years, um, I fit what they needed in terms of archival experience, editing experience, and a broad knowledge of people within the field of public history. Connie, you talked about your professional career development, but where did you grow up and where did you do your undergraduate work? Well, I grew up all over the place because my daddy was an itinerant preacher. He went to seminary when I was five and became a Presbyterian minister. And the, the route to advancement in the field of being a pastor and a minister is to move from very small churches, sometimes rural, sometimes small town, into larger churches. And as he had a growing family to feed, he needed to (laughs) grow in his field. So I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. 
My next sister was born in Minnesota. The next two sisters were born in downstate Illinois, and the fifth one was born in upstate New York. So I moved around. I, from upstate New York, went to the College of Worcester in Ohio, largely because um, all of my family are musicians, uh, amateur, not professional, except for one sister. And the bottom line is Worcester had a very good undergraduate liberal arts curriculum, but it had an excellent music department, an orchestra I could play in, a violin teacher I could take lessons from, and uh, Worcester was a wonderful place to become uh, a scholar, to learn how to do research, uh, and lots of other things. So from Worcester, where I met my husband, Carl, he went to Cincinnati for his PhD in chemistry, and we married that summer after my graduation, and off I went to Cincinnati. And the history department there had just started a, a graduate program. And when I walked in the door and said, I can't find a job with just a bachelor's degree in history, could I take courses? They said, absolutely, we have a graduate assistantship for you. <laughs> okay, so that's how you became a historian. That's professional how I became a professional historian. And, and then you ended up here in Columbia, South Carolina in 1985. And I don't know if my husband ever regretted it. Um, I did my early work for... Um, Lewis Harlan, who was then working on a biography of Booker T. Washington and eventually became the editor of the Booker T. Washington papers, was already putting that in place. When I finished my master's degree, Lewis came to our apartment and said, now, don't sit on that degree. We want you to come back and apply for the PhD here. And so I did uh, and actually wrote a uh, started to write my Ph.D. with him and then decided my real interests were in the early national period and shifted to the, my interest in how religion and politics interact with each other. Religion has an effect on how people believe and act politically, but how people believe and act politically also sometimes has an effect on how they change or modify their religious beliefs and how they behave. So that was my dissertation topic. Well, you, you mentioned earlier about the group of women historians in Washington in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and they were all in, in public history. Pretty much. Because at that time, women in the traditional academic market, there, there were not many. Let's just talk about the way it was. I can remember when I was a graduate student, yes, we had women graduate students. My first wife, Betty, was a graduate student. But most of the women graduate students in history in those days didn't have graduate assistantships in the history department. They were made hall counselors in the dormitories. They got the same benefits that the, that the TAs did, but that's where they went. Well, it's interesting because my first assistantship was as a secretary to the professor who eventually became my dissertation advisor, uh, Jean Lewis. All of the male graduate students had teaching assistantships. Mine was a secretarial assistantship. I did that for one year, and then I did teaching assistantship work. Uh, and most of the time was the only female in the graduate program at Cincinnati. Well, back then, sadly, that was not that unusual. Well, and the interesting thing was he was developing a new course on the history of the Old South, and he was taking a lot of text out of some of the textbooks or some of the really new uh, monographs that were being written on the, new, on the Old South, and my typing involved a lot of copying out passages that he wanted to use in his lectures, and I made a carbon for myself so that when I sat in the classroom taking notes, I already had the text of his lecture in front of me on my carbon copy of his notes. Do you still have those, just out of curiosity? Um, I have them. They're probably going to go out the door very soon because I am in the process of getting ready to move to a retirement community, and I'm having to get rid of 
boxes and boxes of paper and notes and class notes and research notes and Xeroxes. Um, <laughs> well, there were... <laughs> photocopying machines back in those days, but they were very primitive and it was very expensive to to make a copy. So yes, you made a you made a carbon. I just think that's an interesting historical footnote. And I'll give you one more footnote to that. Um, I became pregnant with our first child at the end of my um, graduate instructional career. And before I had to take my comprehensive exams, I was at that point six or seven months pregnant. And I always have written better at the typewriter than by hand, by manuscript. And so I just requested, could I take my comprehensive exams by typing the answers rather than handwriting them? It will be more accurate. And they decided that that was okay because I was pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) What did one have to do with the other? (laughs) Who knows? But they let me do it, so that was fine. But that... Things have really changed significantly, I think, as you know, because you have mentored many women scholars and historians in both in the history department and then when you were director of Southern Studies. Women do not face all of those barriers or assumptions that used to be made. And so we've made progress. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is not the history department at Carolina now at least 50% of the faculty female? I think that's correct. And the chair of the department is a woman. And the previous chair of the, of the department was a woman. So there are opportunities that would have been hard to imagine when I went to graduate school in 1964. Connie, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Dr. Constance Schultz, retired professor of at the University of South Carolina about public history. And we will shortly talk about the Pinckney editorial project. All right, so we get you here in 1985. Right. And you've got this new degree program. And one of the things that was a seller for the program, if if I can use that term, back in the 1970s, is we were producing five or six master's degree students a year, they were all getting jobs. And for students with a liberal arts degree to get a job in the 1970s, 1975 to 1985, was almost unheard of. It was a a bleak time for folks in the humanities and liberal arts. They came on the market just about the time that county historical societies and small local museums began to professionalize their staffs. Frequently, as you know, they had been run by devoted volunteers or very underpaid, uh, usually women. Uh, You're absolutely right. And that continued to be somewhat true. Um, In fact, we at USC were kind of in the forefront, beginning with when you directed the program and carrying through. uh, Mike Scardeville was the director when I came, and I became the first, second person in designated to the program. You handled it pretty much by yourself with people from other areas doing additional courses. They hired me to be the assistant to Mike, and what we did was to make sure that all of our students had an opportunity to actually work in the field through internships. Um, we even were able for about 15 or 20 years to work out assistantships for our graduate students in applied history, later public history, so that their assistantship, instead of teaching um, undergraduates in a section of a massive lecture American history class, we're working 20 hours a week at Historic Columbia, we're working at the State Archives, we're working at the State Museum as their assistantship. And so they went on the market, often with two years of professional experience for various reasons that that arrangement fell apart in after the turn of the century in the early 2000s. But you are absolutely right. Mike Scardeville and then after we hired Bob Wyaneth to teach historic preservation in the year 1992, I think Bob came on, we used to brag that 98% of our graduates 
got jobs in the field immediately after finishing their master's degree. There are a lot of success stories. To me, one of the great success stories was John Larson at Old Salem when he basically became vice president for historic preservation and building the buildings in that community. And I know Donna Ropa up at Historic Pendleton and you Yeah, and that was in your era, and in mine, I can brag that um, one of my early archive students, Jelaine Chubb, a a Charleston uh, woman, grew up in South Carolina, got really interested in archives, and she initially was doing local records in the state of Kansas, went on to the state of Missouri to head their local records program, became the archivist of the state of Ohio, and has been for the last, I think, 10 years, the archivist of the state of Texas. Oh, wow. That's a a huge job. That's a huge job. Hi, Jelaine. I'm sure you're listening. (laughs) Um, but, But other similar successes at the national level. One of our students has... For, for many years, headed a major uh, fund distribution program for the National Park Service. She has been in charge of the distribution of funds for local communities doing preservation projects at various levels. At one time, did you not also put in a certificate program so that individuals say, let's say someone who is a ranger with either the state Department of Natural Resources or with the National Park Service could come back and take a number of courses and get professional credits that they might need. We did that at two levels. That was possible to come from um, a job and take one or two courses. But as that morphed later, what happened was that we changed the program from being one size fits all. Everybody takes all of the same courses and has grounding in archives, in museums, in historic preservation, in terms of the standards and the activities and the processes and the laws um, that governed those various fields. And that's how you created the program, was that everybody got something from all of those areas. During the 80s and the 90s, we shifted because the employers were demanding more training and more experience in their specific area. So we created what we called tracks. There was a museum track, and you could do an additional museum certificate with additional courses in the various areas of museum management. We created an historic preservation track that uh, coordinated with the anthropology department and their historical archaeology so that the student got not just a master's degree, they had an additional three or four courses and a certificate and an additional internship so that when they got out on the job market, they had more of the qualifications that the employers were looking for. Ironically, as we have moved forward in the 21st century, we've shifted back to, well, people still concentrate and they apply in one of those fields. Right now, if I'm correct, because I've been retired since 2008 and don't sit on the curriculum committee anymore, but there's a more generalist approach, particularly because increasingly the public history students are not going for a terminal MA degree. They are PhD candidates who are doing a field in public history, and they might wind up being administrators who do archives, um, management of a library, interpretation of an historic house, but are basically doing historic preservation activities as well. So the more general is now... The, the scene of where we are now. Well, Connie, see, I think that actually is a, a reflection of the general areas of, of public history because in the 1970s, these cultural organizations, of it, whether it was a historic house museum or a small county museum, were, be, were beginning to beef up their staffs. So they, initially, they really didn't even know how to do all of that. And as they continued to grow their staffs, then things got more specialized. Now, those cultural organizations are beginning to cut back because of funding issues. So you then have to be a Jane of, or a Jack of all trades, so to speak. 
But the other aspect of that is as the field has grown, and it really has become much larger, other universities began wanting to offer a designated public history degree program, sometimes at the undergraduate level, but more often at the grad. And they needed faculty. So one of the interesting things about our PhD program is that students who come to do a PhD wanting to become college professors or university professors do a public history field and actually work in the field in order to become public history faculty. And we have some wonderful examples of people who have done exactly that, have done our graduate degree program and then are now teaching and directing a graduate degree program in public history somewhere else. Connie, to continue our conversation on public history, and then I do want to move on to, to uh, Eliza Lucas Pinckney and Harriet Pinckney O'Ree. When the public history program was established at Carolina in 1975, we were one of just about three or four programs in the country. As you said, it became very popular in, in terms of an academic field. Any idea now how many programs there are in the country? I should know the answer to that, and I don't. Just take a wild guess. Well, I, I'm sure there are well over 100. Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things, the Robert Kelly Award was awarded to the University of South Carolina Public History Program in 1992 for leading the way in developing in graduate programs. And one of the things we developed, and I think that led to my getting the pub, the Robert Kelly Award, was we began to internationalize. And so for 20 years, I did a public history in the U.S. and the U.K., a comparative study where I took students to England for six weeks to experience and do public history and see how it was done in other countries. And so we at South Carolina were part of the development of an international public history movement, and I helped write the bylaws for the International Federation for Public History that now has meetings every two or three years in China, and there will be one in Berlin this summer. And I think that's part of the basis of the Robert Kelly Award, is well, the internationalization of the field. Part of your professional career, you've done a number of Fulbright professorships abroad. Were they in just U.S. history or in public history? I was chosen for those because of my public history. At the University of York, they specifically chose me to talk with their students and talk with their faculty about how they could be doing wonderful public history in York City. And when I um, had a one-semester Fulbright at the University of Genoa with a, a wonderful uh, mentor there um, who wanted me to talk about the work I had done with historical photography. Valeria Lerda was her name. Oh, but I, uh, yeah. you I, know Valeria, I'm sure. Valeria. She, yes. she does Southern history in Italy. Yes. And Valeria encouraged me. I invited 10 of my public history friends to come to Italy to give a lecture. I said, I can't pay your expenses, but I'll put you up for free in my apartment, and you can claim it as a tax-deductible professional journey, and uh, we will give you dinner, and you can give a lecture. And it became a book of the public history lectures that my public history friends uh, gave at the University of Genoa. So they, they really were because of my public history experience. I was blessed and just privileged to sort of fall into this field without knowing what it was early on. And it has been an interesting journey for you and uh, for your students and, and the field. Yeah. So, yeah. again, congratulations on the Robert Kelly Award. Thank you. Now, let's go to the scholarly editing that you did on the papers of Eliza Lucas Pinckney and Harriet Pinckney O'Ree. Right. First of all, believe it or not, there may be some people out there who don't know these two ladies. Well, Eliza Lucas Pinckney 
was a remarkable 18th century woman. And in her teenage years, she'd grown up in Antigua, and her father was the the lieutenant general of the uh, British forces in Antigua, and I think also the lieutenant governor. But at any rate, he was not doing very well with his sugar plantation. So in 1739, uh, his father had bought land previously in South Carolina, and in 1739, he decided to move his family to South Carolina, that there was more economic opportunity. Shortly after they moved to South Carolina to Wapu Creek, and he had three active plantations there, he was called back to Antigua with the outbreak of the War of Jenkins' Ear. (laughs) Uh, And they needed him in Antigua. And his wife was sickly, so he left his teenage daughter, Eliza, full name Elizabeth, but always signed her name Eliza, in charge of three plantations. She was then 17. Um, And she regularly wrote to her father, Um, about what she was doing, and he encouraged her to plant new crops. And uh, she wrote to him about all of the different crops that he had sent her seeds to try. And the one that was most successful was indigo. What are some of the other things he tried? Because I I know that folks in South Carolina, they tried pistachio nuts. They tried mahogany trees. Uh, They thought yams. They thought silk. Yeah. Uh, All of those things. Um, And she tried some of them and actually had some minor successes on them. But the one that really took off for South Carolina was indigo. And when you say take off, when she produced the first successful crop, just a few pounds of the dried dye, which is how it was, they called it mud during the process. Within a decade, it became a major export crop in South Carolina, uh, complete with the British bounty. This young woman, a teenager, made a significant contribution to the economic development of colonial South Carolina. Well, what's interesting is how does she happen to get the credit for that? Because she wasn't the only one. Until his first wife died, uh, Charles Pinckney, whom she married, was also experimenting with different crops. And in fact, the pamphlet from that time about the cultivation of indigo was actually written by Charles Pinckney. Um, He encouraged her to do this. There were other planters trying it. uh, And and I think she absolutely deserves credit for participating and being part of that experimentation. But the credit is given to her, really, in the Revolutionary War era history of South Carolina, David Ramsey gives her the credit because she documented it with her letters to her father. And also, it didn't, it didn't hurt that she'd married Charles Pinkney. It didn't hurt at all. <laughs> but, but the bottom line is that she continued to experiment. She marries Charles Pinckney. She moves to his plantations that are now on the Cooper River. She uh, raises three children. She goes to England with all three of her children. When he goes to uh, London, he had been appointed chief justice. He went to London to represent the planter interests of South Carolina uh, unofficially because the the assembly wasn't willing to pay him. Um, They had lived for five years in London And there's a wonderful letter about her meeting with the Dowager Princess Augusta. And the Dowager Princess Augusta puts five-year-old Harriet on her knee and comforts her when she starts to cry after having to stand before royalty for several hours. And Eliza writes this amazing letter home about the meeting with George III, who was then a 16-year-old, and all the royal family was brought in to meet these American visitors and the South Carolina birds that little Harriet had brought as a gift for the princes and princesses. Um, And that was the palace at Kew. Connie, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Constance Schultz, retired professor of at the University of South Carolina about public history. And we will shortly talk about the Pinckney editorial project. 
just to fast forward, Charles Pinckney dies, so she basically is responsible for educating her sons who become uh, founding fathers of the nation. And in fact, my project I now refer to as the Pinckney Papers Projects because we did the women first, and we're very proud of that. And we were able to do it in large part because one of her descendants published her letter book to her father in the 1970s, just at the time when women's history was becoming part of the curriculum in colleges, but increasingly in high schools. And there were the the Eliza Pinckney letter book became a source, published source of primary source letters about colonial era Southern women. There was a lot for Northern women, but there was very little for Southern women. And so Elise Pinckney's publication of her ancestor's uh, letter book became a really important source. So when I proposed doing a scholarly edition a born digital scholarly edition, Eliza Pinckney was well known. She was in the textbooks. Um, I had been asked by Marjorie Spruill and Val Littlefield to write a chapter on Eliza for their their three-volume series on biographies of South Carolina women. Uh, and I said, well, we need to include her daughter Harriet because Harriet Pinckney O'Ree like her mother, became responsible for running plantations in her early 30s and spent her lifetime basically as the the master-slash-mistress of the plantations that they inherited from their husbands and kept them going for their sons. Uh, and so that became the Eliza Pinckney Harriet O'Ree edition. The stories you were telling briefly about Indigo and the meeting in, with the royal family, all of that comes from Eliza Lucas Pinckney's letter. They are in the journals, but they're not really in the letter book. To do an edition, you have to go beyond the obvious first source of documents. One of the reasons I wanted to do an edition was it became clear to me that there was at least three times as much manuscript material written by or to Eliza and Harriet as was in that initial 1970s edition of her letter book. In fact, we discovered up at Duke University's library a fragment of letters that we knew when we saw them had been written by Eliza Pinckney, and they were cataloged as being by Eliza Pinckney. But when we did really intensive look at the kind of paper, the watermarks on it, the places, that was a section of the letter book that had been separated sometime in the past. So in our edition, we put the letter book back together and added a whole section that had been lost. But there were a lot of other like this letter written from England to an unknown relative, that was not in the letter book. That was a, a manuscript recipient's copy that was in Charleston on display. And when we saw it, we said, this is an Eliza Pinckney letter, and it's got wonderful stuff. It wasn't in any of the letter books. What, about 750 documents in this In that collection? edition, yes. And you've divided them into sections correspondence, which includes a lot of things, legal, even financial documents, Harriet Pinckney O'Ree's travel journal. Yes. And then both women compiled receipt books, as they would have said, in 18th and early 19th century South Carolina. It's interesting, Walter, because what what has happened is that we have gone on, um, we found the women so interesting, but a lot of the letters that we published in the edition of the women's papers, Eliza and Harriet, were letters to Eliza's sons and Harriet's brothers. And we kept saying, gee, these men are pretty interesting, too. Who are the three Pinckney men? Three Pinckney men are Eliza's two sons, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and his younger brother, Thomas Pinckney. And they had a first cousin once removed, also named Charles Pinckney, Constitutional Charlie. That's right. And both he and his cousin, 
Charles Coatsworth Pinckney had important roles in the Constitutional Convention, and Thomas was governor of South Carolina, and he was the one who chaired the South Carolina Constitutional Convention that ratified the Constitution. So they all have a connection to the Constitution. Well, I think now about researching, these are complete, you, you can word search these documents. Well, and beyond that, and because it's a born digital edition, um, we do create indexing tools, and we have subject topics that you can search any, because sometimes what you want to find isn't there to find in a word search. So if, for instance, you want to do something about slavery or enslaved people, that word is often not used. So we have created um, subject topical search tools, but more importantly, because it's digital and organized through a database, anytime a name appears in any letter of the 3,000 of the Pinckney Statesman, that name is linked to an identification of that person. And when you click on the pointer tag and go to the ID for that person, you then get access to every document in which that person's name appears because it's a database. You can link and cross-link. So you can immediately say, okay, we're right now working on the War of 1812. When did Thomas Pinckney write letters to Andrew Jackson? And you can go to every letter, not only that Andrew Jackson wrote or he wrote to Andrew Jackson, you can look to any mention of Andrew Jackson in letters to the secretaries of state, the secretary of war, the various people who were Thomas Pinckney, I, I am discovering, is a far more important figure in the War of 1812 than he has ever been given credit for. And when we release our fourth volume this summer, we will really be revolutionizing our understanding of the War of 1812 in the South. Share, please. Okay. Which part of sharing? Uh, the, the War of 1812. Well— Thomas Pinckney in the War of 1812. What happens is that when the War of 1812 breaks out, he had been a military officer during the Revolutionary War. So he is invited to become the major general of what initially was the 6th military district and initially was all of the war south of Virginia, actually initially south of the Potomac. And as the major general, he had the responsibility beginning in the middle of 1812 to organize the defense of the southern coast because it was clear that the British were going to be fighting a naval war and a coastal war to disrupt the trade of the south, um, and particularly the trade of the south with the colonies of the French, as well as cutting off their trade with the colonies of the British in the Caribbean. But that district involved everything eventually south of Virginia all the way to the Mississippi River and New Orleans. And that war had some real attacks on Charleston, Savannah, Wilmington. This was going on in 1812 and 1813. And then, and this is where Thomas's work has never been appreciated, when the Creek War broke out early in 1813, it was initially a, a civil war within the Creek Nation. Yes, in basically in what was Alabama Territory. In yeah. Alabama Territory, and you would know about this. Yeah, yeah the massacre at Fort Mims. That's yes, right. Well, but the bottom line in all this was one group of these Creek tribes who had been part of a unified Creek Nation, one component of them were supported by the British, and because we were at war with the British, that became our war as well. And so um, the War Department carved out a separate military district called the 7th Military District, centered on New Orleans, but including 
um, parts of the Alabama and Mississippi Territory. It was it was then all called, if I'm right, the Mississippi Territory. It, it was, yes. Uh, out of which the states of Mississippi and Alabama were then carved. But it involved whole segments of western Georgia as well. A lot of the Creek War is fought on tributaries of rivers that have their origins in western Georgia. And Thomas Pinckney is assigned responsibility for the Creek War against the hostile Creek part. But they had both allies, and so it's a fascinating body of letters. We probably have about three or 400, which we have culled down from more than twelve or 1,500 of letters between Thomas Pinckney. He moved his headquarters initially in 1812 from Charleston to Savannah, But then when the Creek War broke out, he moved his headquarters first to Milledgeville and then basically moved the the fighting was around what is now Tuscaloosa and Tuskegee in that area. And he went there. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite things that I've seen is one of their descendants, one of his descendants, has a portable writing desk that Thomas Pinckney took with him into the field to write his letters. It has a wonderful uh, inscription that Thomas Pinckney's son, uh, Edward, carved his initials into the desk when when his father had it at home. <laughs> well, before we got into the War of 1812, you mentioned correspondence between Thomas Pinckney and Andrew Jackson. I can't think, scratching my head, what's going on. But obviously, once you get into the Creek War, that's right. Jackson is the man on the ground. That's right. Well, and Thomas Pinckney is the guy who is making sure that the governors of Tennessee and Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina provide militia recruits. And and he is managing the logistics of supplies getting from the centers of government to the battlefields. And he's going out there to make sure they're getting there. There's wonderful correspondence about building boats to move things up and down rivers and building fortifications. That was Thomas's job as the major general, Andrew Jackson's job as the major general of the Tennessee militia was to lead the troops into battle and fight the battles on the ground. So Thomas Pinckney's role was absolutely essential. What did Thomas Pinckney think about Jackson's excursion into Spanish Florida and Pensacola? Did he get in? Well, what happens is that that expedition is actually early on is with other generals who, um, in fact, the earliest expedition into Spanish Florida were Georgia settlers who had moved over the border and who wanted to make that area of actually East Florida into to separate it from Spain and to attach it onto the United States. And we had a peace treaty with Spain that Thomas Pinckney had signed and negotiated in 1795. And we were not at war with Spain. And the War Department and the president did not want us to be at war with Spain. We had enough to do with the British. And so the early parts of that with the Seminoles um, in the area of Florida from basically what's now Gainesville East were the beginnings of a war with Spain that Thomas Pinckney clamped down on. We are not at war with Spain. You cannot make us go to war with Spain. We have enough to deal with. Your knowledge is really much later, pretty much almost after the Creek War is over. And yet there are still uh, refugee Creeks who are creating problems along the frontier in Mobile. And the, and the British go in to support their Creek allies. I'm less expert on Andrew Jackson and what he was doing down there because once the Creek War itself is over, the two 6th and 7th military districts are separated again, and Andrew Jackson becomes the U.S., not the Tennessee militia, major general of the 7th military district that's centered in in New Orleans. One of the ironies of all of this as Thomas Pinckney is the major general. The secretary of war is John C. Calhoun. Actually, by the time that Calhoun becomes secretary of war, 
Thomas Pinckney has resigned his commission because essentially the war is over. Okay. Um, and so he works with A.J. Dallas, who is the Secretary of War at the end of Thomas's period of being the uh, Major General of the Sixth okay. yeah. and defending the coast. Connie, I hate to tell you, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. So before we sign off today, any last words for our listeners about public history and about the Pinckney Project? Well, I think the word I would like to say, because I haven't had a chance to say it earlier, is we could not have done any of the Pinckney Project work without the support of the National Endowment for the Humanities, which funded the Eliza Pinckney Harriet Ory. Uh, and has been funding the Statesman, but also with the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, which has been a major donor. Plus, private individual citizens have made gifts. It is expensive to do this kind of work. So I want to make sure we give credit where credit is due uh, to members of the Pinckney family, to the NEH and the NHPRC. Um, and I have just have been so honored that... That work is being recognized, and my colleagues and students who work with me on it are thus being recognized, and I've been privileged. All right. Well, Professor Constant Schultz, my longtime friend Connie, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The genesis for today's conversation was the announcement of Connie Schultz winning the Robert Kelly Award from the Association of Public History. It was one that was well-deserved, but it also gave us an opportunity to talk about what is public history in terms of the historical profession today, and then to move into her very talented work on the papers of Eliza Lucas Pinckney and Harriet Pinckney Ory. And that project has, of course, morphed into the Pinckney Project, which includes the papers of Thomas Pinckney, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, and their cousin, Charles Pinckney. Connie Schultz is helping to preserve for future generations our South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina.